The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Dr. Campbell serves up a sweeping historical survey of the literature on diet and health, brilliantly exploring the institutional biases that have long confused consumers and subverted the science as to the power of evidence-based nutrition to prevent and treat disease. That's what Dr. Michael Greger has to say about the fabulous new book from the legendary T. Colin Campbell, PhD. The book is The Future of Nutrition, and Dr. Campbell is our guest today. Welcome, everybody. I am your host, Victoria Moran, and absolutely thrilled to have on someone that I admire deeply and appreciate so much and one of my gratitudes sometimes is that I am alive at the same time as Dr. T. Colin Campbell. If you are new to all of this, you may not be familiar with this illustrious uh, researcher, so I'll give you a little bit of a rundown and then we will bring him on live in person and right here. T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D., has been dedicated to the science of human health for more than 60 years. His primary focus is on the association between diet and disease, particularly cancer, although largely known for the China study, one of the most comprehensive studies on health and nutrition ever conducted and recognized by the New York Times as the Grand Prix of epidemiology, Dr. Campbell's profound impact also includes extensive involvement in education, public policy, and research. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Thank you so much. It's really an honor for me to be on your show. Uh, we've had it before, but it's always really great to hear your enthusiasm. I love well, it. it. It just means the world to me to, to know you, to have you here. I remember, I'm not sure if it was the first time we met, but it was the first time we really hung out. And it was out in the Northwest, Seattle, I think. And we were both being hosted in somebody's house. <laughs> and so 
we really got to talk and you connected me with your colleague in China and I got to visit him there. And I just feel like as a person who's peripheral to the health aspects of this way of living, I'm not a healthcare provider, not trained in science, that through knowing you and some of these other incredible science people, this world has opened up to me that I would never have otherwise seen. So personally, I can't thank you enough, not to mention what you've done for the world at large. So let's jump in on the future of nutrition. And I love it that even though you and I are both in the later reaches of the age range, you're writing about the future because that's the kind of person you are. So tell me about this hidden history of nutrition and disease that we need to know before we can look at the future. Well, the first thought that occurs to me is that uh, nutrition is a great science. It has so much to offer now that we know so much more. Uh, But it's been a hard sell, to be honest about it. Um, And uh, it's been confusing for a lot of people in the public. And and yet it is, in my view, the premier biomedical science of all. Uh, And and really, I I define uh, nutrition as the uh, basically the expression essentially, the expression of food when we consume it. Say what the food does in our body, in our biochemical sense, physiological sense, and so forth. In any case, that's, that's enough of that. Uh, but, but it is confusing. Um, it, the biochemistry is extraordinarily complex, uh, infinitely complex. There's so many variations, so many parts of this puzzle. And uh, unfortunately, uh, as I see it, what I've uh, experienced over the years is that people tend to want to focus on one little part at a time and not see the whole. When in reality, when, when, at least for myself, when I started sorting out these, all these different reactions here, there, these cells, those cells, so forth and so on, uh, they, it turned out they work together to produce the same result. When they have the right raw material, that is the right food, it's marvelous. And I, I describe that as nature. But in any case, that's my interpretation of what nutrition really can do and, and does do you know, when we eat the right food. But coming back to the question concerning uh, confusion, I uh, have done a lot of pushback, I have to say, during my career uh, from my own community as well as the clinical community on uh, you know, arguing so strongly for the role of nutrition because you know, medical schools, they don't teach nutrition and so forth. Um, and so there, there are these difficulties, and I really want to know more. Why, why have we got ourselves in this position? So I decided to go back and look at the history, particularly the history concerning nutrition, but even more significantly, maybe the history of cancer research, which is another specialty of mine. And I did that in Oxford University, and I spent a year there at that time. And uh, wow, did I find some stuff that was really riveting, very exciting. Um, it, it, in the 1800s, we, there, there was a fairly honest and vigorous debate as to what was the cause of cancer, for one thing. There was one school that said, you know, it was a local disease and therefore could be managed fairly easily. We just cut it out. You can imagine those were the surgeons. Uh, but that was a very simplistic view of what cancer was. The other one had to do with uh, it's a whole body kind of thing. Lots of things are involved. I mean, that made more sense. 
but unfortunately, as the end of the 1800s came along, the Industrial Revolution and so forth, and the discovery of all these marvelous tools and, and machines and this and that, uh, it, we ended up choosing the wrong model. We chose the model that basically posited this idea that cancer and other diseases too are all local. And if they're local, what that means, what that suggests also, there's some very specific cause is, is involved in cause of the disease, very specific, let's say, entity or chemical. Um, and also we talk about, you know, very individual, all diseases being very individualistic. And therefore that suggests too that when we treat them, we have to treat them with a very specific, you know, chemical, if you will, a drug by name. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we got stuck in that model of thinking so simplistically on one of the parts of the whole. And so because there are infinite numbers of parts, everybody can have a field day and pick in their favorite part. And we end up arguing about it and find it, seldom finding really honest agreement between everyone. So I think going back to the concept that looking at the whole, just this marvelous way of all these reactions going on. And I, I did this formally with lots of students over the years doing, looking for the, you know, the elusive explanation for this, that, or something else. And it seemed like every time we looked for one in response to the feeding of animal-based protein, if you will, we, we found all these different reactions, although they were swimming from different directions, they were coming from different sources, they had different <clears throat> endpoints. What, what was marvelous about that whole scenery is that all these different reactions and so forth with their different functions, et cetera, they were all sort of working together without a section to produce the same result. And what, what I got excited about was that in this case, the chemical that we were using to try to understand how it works was animal-based protein. Animal-based protein. And it turns out animal-based protein is not a good thing. It turns on cancer. It increases cholesterol levels in the blood, which can lead to heart disease. It does a whole host of things. And so what, in trying to understand how animal protein works, I really ran across this fascinating idea that it works by a million different reactions, all working almost like a family of reactions under the guidance of something, it's hard to define, to be honest about it. But, but just a simple idea that this could work in such a beautiful, and I, I liken that to a symphony. A symphony, you know, we made up of different instruments, obviously, different notes for each instrument, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, don't fo we can't focus on a single note or a single uh, instrument necessarily and get the picture of a whole or a great painting. Each brushstroke has its own characteristics, its color, its texture, so forth and so on. But it, it doesn't describe the great uh, Renaissance art, for example. And so this really caught my imagination, that we in science tend to sort of look at parts, and we call that science. Science has become defined over the years, I've noticed, as, as measuring something very specifically, very accurately, 
that's considered good science. I can understand that for making computers and you know keeping our planes flying without falling out of the sky and stuff like that. But but the thing is, in biology, it's a whole different story. All these parts, these marvelous, marvelous parts, are really all all these parts are, in, in a sense are like angels. Different color, different size, different directions, all working together when they're doing good things. When they're responding to the right kind of food, which in, in turn is made up of a whole lot of things all working together. It, this this concept, I, I call it holism with a W. And to me, that's nutrition. That's nutrition. And that's why nutrition is not taught in medical schools. That's why we get confused about nutrition in my own profession, nutritional science, because we all talk about individual things, doing very specific things and operating by specific mechanisms, etc. We lose sight of the whole. We lose sight of the whole. So, Doctor Campbell, the reasons, oh, sorry. I, yeah, I'm sorry, going on for so long. <laughs> but, you know, I, I could talk about this for weeks or something. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And, and we could listen for weeks. I was wondering if you have a predecessor in this. Has anybody in the history of, of biochemical science and the history of nutrition ever alluded to this before, this idea of wholeness? No, to be honest about it, there's some have gotten close to it at times, I think, not, not with that name, uh, but, but some have kind of gotten close to it but not nearly, I think, as close as, as I've been able to do because uh, in the modern day, we had, I had access to a lot of uh, very finite instruments, and, if you will, and, and that sort of thing, modern-day instruments. And we could look you know, at, at, the, at the parts a little more carefully than people couldn't. So, uh, no, to answer, to answer your question, I don't really have hardly any colleagues that uh, have gone down that road. It's fascinating to me. I've been doing a lot of study since the pandemic in, in yoga and Ayurveda. And some of these ideas seem to be hidden in some of the ancient teachings from India. But we sure miss them in the West until you. So it's, it's so fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of indigenous peoples around the world, each having their own sort of thing they've been doing for centuries, if you will. And uh, it's really very interesting. Yes, that is. I was interested in in what you said about nutrition and and it's really being like the the ultimate of of the health sciences. And yet, just looking at it from the outside, it looks like the stepchild. And I don't know if that's because food was traditionally associated with women, and so it wasn't considered as cool as some of these other things. But is that accurate? Does the scientific and medical community just kind of say, oh yeah, eat well and get on with it? Yes. And unfortunately, when they say that, without almost subconsciously, they're saying to make sure there's good, healthy diet, good, healthy food. And what they mean by that, make sure you get enough protein. And they're really referring, uh, again, sometimes subconsciously, they're referring to the protein of animals. When in fact, plants have all the protein we need. And animal-based protein is different than plant-based protein. 
animal-based protein does some things that are not in our favor, a lot of things. So, yeah, so uh, that's what the clinician, the practitioner tends to say, is eat the good food, make sure you get our protein. They they say some other things these days, too. But over the decades, I think the focus has been on animal-based protein as being the kingmaker for the right kind of diet. And that's what I saw, too, in history. That's a fascinating story, by the way. Tell us the fascinating story. Well, you know, protein itself uh, was the first nutrient actually isolated chemically. Uh, It was isolated as a chemical uh, from, of all things, meat being consumed by dogs. And so this experiment done back in the 1830s, uh, actually, it was very exciting for me. What they found was that this chemical that kept the dogs alive, the dog couldn't do without that so-called chemical. They had to give it a name. And uh, they they said it was the stuff of life itself. Uh, Later, some other people called the stuff of civilization itself. But in any case, they said, it was, it was life itself. They had to come up with a name. And so the name they came up with was protein, which comes from the Greek word proteos, P-R-O-T-E-I-O-S, which means of prime importance. So, you know, this chemical got baptized with the ultimate name, protein, name of prime importance in, in the original form. And so there it was. And from there on, uh, the idea of consuming uh, proteins from animals, by the way, was the way you got healthy. And eventually it was called the stuff of civilization itself. Then it was called, uh, I found in some of the literature, some of the medical people in Great Britain and their colonies, for example, who were interested in rounding up uh, what they called body material, you know, some men who could go out and uh, sort of keep control of things, fight, if you will. Uh, the statement was made that we want, we, we want those men who are consuming protein. So protein got associated with strength, uh, with the male, with, with the male, of course, with men. Uh, and it became very much of a masculine idea, strength, power, even war, if you will. And so, so to be big and strong, you had to have, you had to eat meat. Now, I think that whole that uh, narrative, that, that kind of discussion has a deeper history even than that. But that's what protein became. Uh, animal-based protein became the thing to have if you want to be strong. And, uh, and, and women kind of got left out of it. Uh, what's interesting, whether I think it's whether it's a subconscious thing or not, what I find in the modern day, as I started questioning this animal protein thing, uh, and, and suggesting that we get all the protein we need from plants, the the uh, the people who are most uh, jumping on board with the two, uh, and I think uh, in Islam, men too, you know, once they begin to see the the uh, the writing on the wall, it works out for both of us. But uh, yes, you're right. There has been a bit of a sexism that's been going on for quite a long time. 
Well, it's interesting, too, you have a quotation in the book from Franklin Pierce Adams that says, nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. And as you're talking about that history of protein, I recall reading that the Roman gladiators were fed a plant-based diet (laughs) so that they could be stronger and more powerful. So we kind of uh, forget things and and then they're reintroduced. And we also have this thing that you call the cult of animal protein. Can you talk about the cult? The cult uh, is something that uh, obviously uh, a group of people believe very deeply in, and it's an idea that's not to be questioned. Uh, and they go forward with that idea in their own best interest, if you, if you will. Um, and so a cult uh, tends to rise uh, in a larger context in the whole society that I call a paradigm. Uh, it's not really a conspiracy. It's conspiracy is something different. But, but a paradigm, as uh, most people will know, is, is, a, is, a, is a phenomenon. It's a belief system for a whole culture uh, that almost everybody you know, agrees with. Uh, and, and so it goes forward. And, and sometimes we all end up not, we're not knowing what we don't know. Because of the system, as on as that idea, and of course, in extreme cases, those that idea may, whatever it may be, um, it really takes on a great deal of power, if you will. It's a sort of singular force almost, and that's what animal protein became. Animal protein was was something that was to be valued, as I as we already talked about it. You know, it's something building strength and the stuff of civilization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you're not to be questioned. I mean, you can't question that. And that was a part of the history that I saw, too, was when anyone came along and re-questioned that idea, they got in trouble. And that rang true with me because um, I got in trouble when I started talking about this. And why do you think that was? If If you had been talking about problems with strawberries or barley, you probably wouldn't have had the same kind of pushback. No, I would not have. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. I, the kind of pushback that I got, um, you know, I, I try to be a positive person. I, and as I sort of experienced some of these problems in the past, I, I kind of, what occurred to me when these arose, um, I, I tried to just figure out how to get around it, if you will, and, and take it as something positive. You know, okay, here's what someone doesn't like. Uh, I don't believe it. I'm going to figure it around it. Uh, and so I have those kind of occasions. Hello, are you there? I'm here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Here, oh. uh, listening with both ears. So. Okay, my microphone. Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. So when somebody is just. They're going to get rid of animal foods in their diet. They're maybe slowly, maybe overnight, and they're they're getting pushback from the people around them. Is there some really great scientific answer that they can provide that might not convince anybody that, but will at least give them the peace to go on and make their choice? Well. The, basically, the diet we rely on these days, the majority of people, uh, is uh, enriched in animal protein. It's also enriched in the parts of 
plants in many cases. So it's kind of confusing as we already talked about. That in turn is associated with increases in cancer of all kinds, heart disease, autoimmune disease, and so forth. Um, and furthermore, it's not only associated with those diseases arising over time when we use that kind of food. What's really interesting is when that is changed over to, let's say, a whole food, plant-based food, we can actually use that kind of diet to reverse the disease we may now have. So it said, and I saw this figure recently, that 60% of adults have uh, already been diagnosed with something that's associated with maybe with cancer, heart disease, diabetes, whatever. That's a big number. That's a scary number. But a lot of people do have, you know, health problems. And what they really might like to know is that if they change their diet over to one that doesn't have the animal protein in it, that, that is not made up of all the parts of plants, but basically whole food, plant-based, if they do that, the results that we can see health-wise occur within, believe it or not, one to two days. It's really rapid. And I'll, I'll be a little more specific about that. Um, the, if, if people with, let's say, high, high cholesterol levels, and most people have higher than the normal cholesterol levels, and they're, they're, they may be diagnosed already with heart disease and some other things, if they go into this diet, the cholesterol in the blood drops like a rock within 24 to 30 hour, 36 hours. It really is amazing. People on, in diabetes with diabetes symptoms, you know, high blood sugar, they're taking medication, they're trying to keep it down with the medication, et cetera. What well, turns out that if those people switch to the same diet, whole food pet based, they do that, that has the power to depress cholesterol, I mean, depress blood sugar also. In fact, the dietary effect is so strong that if they don't quit the drugs, they can go into levels that are too low, hypoglycemic shock. That's amazing. And so that, that's that's one thought for all those who may. I mean, we, so this is this is not something that gradually occurs uh, necessarily over time. Although that's true too, but it, it has this very rapid effect. It can actually be used to reverse disease. You know, my good friend Dr. Cole Esselstyn, uh, Dr. Ornish, uh, others, Dr. John McDougall, uh, they were doing some of this kind of thing when I was coming out of the lab and start talking about this too. So um, they, they were actually demonstrating how people with those kinds of issues could resolve their problems so quickly. I, I find that so amazing. So that's, that's one thing that I think would tell people. This is not about preventing something in the future that you can, you know, kind of postpone and thinking about it. It's actually something that can actually turn the disease around this week. This is so great. We can trade fast food for fast health. And who wouldn't want that? So everybody, yes, we're going to yes, pause yes. for a bit for our, our mid-show break. And we're going to come back with more with Dr. T. Colin Campbell. We'll get to your questions and lots of really great information found in this incredible new book, The Future of Nutrition. And guess what? That future is now. Stay with us. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan podcast. It's always such a pleasure to know that you're taking this time. Maybe you're on the treadmill. Maybe you're walking your dog or driving in your car. But gosh, it's really wonderful to know that you're spending this time with us. If you love our show, maybe you would like to give it five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And to really be in our inner circle, you may wish to join the Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners page on Facebook. We would love to have you there. Also, to check out what's uh, going on in the world of Main Street Vegan, we're at MainStreetVegan.net. Our blog this week comes from Stacy Anderson, Ph.D., and it's called Lofty Words for a Down-to-Earth Food. And she's talking about the ubiquitousness of cheese and how we can navigate that in our plant-based lives. And also, final announcement, just want to give you guys a heads up that the Compassion Consortium is having its third monthly service coming up on June 27th. So in honor of Pride Month, we're having as our very special guest, Jane Velez Mitchell, and our Compassion in Action person is a New York City performance artist called Mother Pigeon. You will love her. We're having music from Broadway and Hollywood composer and arranger Beth Ertz and also a sing-along with Kermit the Frog. So if you have any interest in an interfaith, interspiritual, interspecies service, uh, we'll be there on Sunday. You can register free, of course, but you do need to register at Compassion Consortium O. And we'll put that information in our show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, along with the information uh, about Dr. Campbell's amazing book, The Future of Nutrition, and of course, his um, uh, Facebook page, Nutrition Studies, he's Nutrition Studies on Instagram, and you can also uh, go to uh, a website, which we'll post there for more information about the work and about the incredible lifelong work of T. Colin Campbell, Ph.D. So, Dr. Campbell, some people sent in some questions online. This comes from Crystal in Texas, and she's asking, what do you think of the intermittent fasting trend? Well, I can't say too much professionally about it. I know something about it personally. I've done it myself. Uh, and the first comment, I'm not sure what that interval is that people use i mean you know does that mean fasting or let's say not eating food for one day a week or one day a month i'm not sure there's various variations but uh from a scientific point of view uh i think it's a good idea uh all the signs for me point to that being not not too bad not not too strange of an idea to do i've done it myself so i know from personal experience too uh that it can be helpful so but as I say, that's about 90% anecdotal on my part, about 10% science, but I, I think it's a good idea. Okay, thank you, and uh, thanks from Crystal. The next question is from Pirita in Finland, and she's asking, 
isn't the science clear on what people should and should not eat? Why is there still so much dispute about it? Well, as I mentioned before, science, especially in the area of nutrition and medicine in general, we tend to focus on the parts, little details, one at a time, lots and lots of confusion. It turns out that focusing on those parts like that makes money. That's really what the problem is. If we can, if we can get a single part and show something about it that looks good, and we can get intellectual property protection for that idea, that's really important. If we can get that legal protection, then we can go out and sell it. We can make money. So the idea of thinking about nutrition as parts or practicing medicine as first parts, we have far too much focus on the parts, but it makes money. And so that, in turn, translates into politics. And so when people are making regulation, recommendations, and so forth and so on, they're very much as conscious, you know, leaders are very much conscious of what effect does that have on the business. I find it very troubling uh, because for me, nutrition is a holistic idea that we can all do and we can see the benefits in a variety of ways. We don't need to necessarily rely on those parts. Fascinating. So thank you, and, and thanks from Pirita. So you've talked about the cult of animal protein, but you say in the book, The Future of Nutrition, that there are also related myths, debates, and diversions. What are some of those, and how can we counteract them? Well, you know, uh, the fact that we did not over the years, we were not allowed in science very much to talk about the difficulties with animal protein, uh, we started making up excuses subconsciously. I mean, this is not, I'm not talking about a conspiracy, that sort of thing. But we started blaming problems on something else. For example, we blamed heart disease on the consumption of dietary cholesterol. Cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. Uh, so we, we actually got into a business of creating drugs to depress cholesterol levels, if you will, as if that, you know, that one thing, that's not, that's not the idea. So that's a, that's a bit of a myth. Cholesterol, of course, is only present in animal-based foods, so it's a good marker for eating, if you will, the wrong food. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a myth, believing that cholesterol is the cause of heart disease and then putting all of our efforts and our money into trying to reduce cholesterol in the blood doesn't make a lot of sense. Another one... Um, it has to do with saturated fat. Saturated fat is mostly in animal-based, uh, both cholesterol and saturated fat are mostly in animal-based foods. Um, and uh, so we blamed saturated fat, which, and we said polyunsaturated fat, typically found in plants. So animal protein basically is the main cause of heart disease and cancer and so forth. Just our, our wish to have animal protein causes those problems. But uh, we didn't talk about it that way. We talked about it uh, being due to something like cholesterol, and I mentioned that, and saturated fat. Saturated fat is typically more common in animal-based foods. It's an indicator of animal-based foods. And we start blaming saturated fat as the, co- as the cause, let's say, of heart disease and cancer, instead of the unsaturated fat from plants. Saturated fat's got a bad name. Unsaturated fat's got a good name. Uh, that was wrong because saturated fats aren't the cause of those diseases, number one. And number two, the unsaturated fats, um, when they're taken out and put in a bottle, like in 
plant oils, cooking oils, and that sort of thing. Uh, they don't behave the same way that, as they do in plants, and they'll actually cause problems themselves. So added oil from the plants is rich in unsaturated fats, usually the so-called omega-6 kinds of fats, pro-inflammatory. That's a problem. So we, we remain much too simplistic, for example, blaming the cholesterol itself or blaming saturated fat itself. Or there's a whole host of those kind of sort of mythologies that's arisen. And you know what's interesting about all that is most of those, one way or another, directly or indirectly, are associated with not facing the fact that it's the animal protein itself and all the nutrients that drags along with it that really causes the problem. That's what, so we, we couldn't, as I said before, animal protein is almost uh, part of a cult. We all believe it. We think it's so important. It's been that way. We're not to question it. Uh, so we keep on thinking we have to have that animal protein. Well, in the meanwhile, we're blaming something else for the problems that animal protein is really causing. I'm getting this. It's so people can sell something, whether it's a drug or a supplement. Right. When you divide it up into exactly. the parts, you can sell that, and only nature can sell the whole. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Cut right, Victoria. Yeah. So we hear so much, Dr. Campbell, about health care and the health care crisis and health care costs and health care overwhelm. And is the health care system going to be ready for the next pandemic? But you talk about disease care <laughs> and institutionalized disease care. Tell us about that. Well, institutionalized disease care is, is, uh, redu is, re is a reduction idea. We're working with parts, whether they be individual drugs or nutrients and so forth. Um, and so institutionalized health care, when I use the word institution, I'm talking about a whole system of thinking, if you will, involving the government, the industry, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that, that's what I mean by institutional health care. We're, we're focused on parts. They make money, very simply. They don't work to create health like the whole of the plant does. And so we have a, we have a bit of competition here. It's a very contrasting ideas. So on the one hand, the parts, which is part of the industry, causes problems. Sometimes you can see some short-term solutions, but nonetheless, they are the major cause of problems. Uh, on the other hand, Plants, the whole plant, that's the solution that makes for health. One makes for money, the other makes for health. Ooh. And so we've got to put that seesaw in the right way, balance it out. When you talk about a holistic solution, that to me brings up everybody, the whole earth, all that's going on. So when I hear a, a presumably well-meaning uh, physician or researcher promoting a diet high in animal foods and then I turn on CNN and I see fires in California and, and record-breaking temperatures and terrible hurricanes, I'm just perplexed that anyone who's interested in health isn't looking at the whole picture. What do you tell them? Well, that's a great, great question. It's, it's very germane to our problems we now have. Uh, the chief cause of uh, the global warming phenomenon that we're experiencing now, and it's threatening, it's very, very serious, of course, um, that the chief cause is consuming the wrong food. It's very simple. 
I was involved with that with the World Bank about uh, 25, 30 years ago or so. Uh, they had contacted me, the senior advisor in the environment, sort of had me come and give a lecture, and we sort of comparing notes. They subsequently wrote a paper on that. Now there's lots of papers that have been derived from that original one and some other very original papers on their own. But it's very clear, consuming animal-based food, in other words, supports the livestock industry, among other uh, industries that's associated with that. That, in turn, leads to um, climate change, global warming. It has to do with also contaminated water, destruction of the, you know, dead zones in the ocean, all sorts of things. And, and it all comes back just to, you know, what kind of food should we eat? Well, it turns out that if we ate all plant-based foods, we would really, there's been some estimates, the reduction in the problem is really pretty, pretty exciting. We, we should really start bringing that thing under control by simply eating the right food. In, in the meanwhile, when we're doing that, we're getting healthier. We're reducing health care costs. So we get a really basket full of benefits. Uh, but the most important being uh, relief on the environment, which now is expressing itself as, you know, drought and heating up the environment and fires here and there and wild storms and so forth and so on. We've got to pay attention to this thing and really start talking about it in the context of the food we eat. Well, you've been talking for decades and people are listening, so that's exciting. And I do want to do a shout out to Howard Lyman, uh, the mad cowboy who, who wrote your foreword. And that really shows to me that you're focused on human health here, but even in your choice of foreword writer, you're also looking at the planet. You are looking at the whole. So toward the end of your book, I'm not sure if it's the exact last chapter, but you have a chapter about COVID. So tell us what you talk about there. Well, this is based on work we did in China uh, now 30-some years ago when we did a study there and surveyed the causes of disease and, you know, measured everything under the sun, taking blood samples and so forth. Uh, determined that nutrition really was a major factor in causing heart disease, cancer, and so forth and so on. Uh, we also had a disease there, too, that was a viral disease, a very serious viral disease, in many ways more serious than the coronavirus, namely the hepatitis B virus that causes primary liver cancer, which kills something like seven to 800,000 people every year in the world. I mean, it's really pretty horrific. Uh, and so... We, what we did in that case, trying to understand how liver cancer was occurring, we learned that consuming a plant-based diet uh, is strongly associated with no liver cancer. Consuming even a small amount of animal food, that's what's associated with liver cancer. And, of course, uh, that idea was that it suggests that the, that the animal-based diet, which tends to cause various cancers and heart disease and chronic kidney disease, disease and so forth, that animal-based diet, even small consumption of animal-based foods associated with an increase in, in the severity of that virus. We, we measured antibody prevalence, for example, which is immunity to the virus. And what we found is that people consuming they had greater immunity, more antibodies, and they didn't get the cancer. 
people consuming animal-based food, very small amounts compared to the West, people consuming animal-based food in rural China, they were the ones that did not form antibodies. Instead, they carried around with them the active virus, which in turn associates with liver cancer. So that's been published in a peer-reviewed journal um, just recently. Um, I know even to mention this uh, is a very sensitive issue because everybody is talking about, not everybody, but the, the system in a sense is talking about the use of vaccines and, and uh, you know, chemical treatment, pharmacological treatments, uh, and that's supposedly the only answer. There is another answer. It comes from nature. It's called innate immunity. Innate immunity is the natural immunity that we can acquire by consuming the right food. And that means consuming plant-based foods. Our immune system is much healthier. And the data we had for that virus, not the COVID virus, but that virus, uh, basically had a major, major effect on it. It's the same solution as preventing uh, chronic degenerative diseases. So then I've been postulating, emphasize that word hypothesis, I should say, postulating that what works for the hepatitis B virus is very likely to work for the for the coronavirus as well. That gets controversial, of course. People want to, don't want to hear that. Uh, some people get very angry about it. But the fact of the matter is, what works for all these degenerative diseases and other viruses is likely to be the same. And turns out, there is a recent paper just out showing that. Um, it's a little bit, it's, it's not a very rigorous study, but nonetheless, it was a study of six countries they were showing the fact that people consuming more plant-based food have less uh, COVID-19. And I think this is, this is a whole story itself. I'm publishing more on that. I put a bit of it in the book. And I'm just simply suggesting. I'm not saying I have proof. I'm suggesting that if people eat the right food, then uh, they'll be much less susceptible to the hazards of the coronavirus. That is so interesting, and I love it that you can suggest something. I, I think that we're a little bit afraid of information these days, and wherever one is on the spectrum, somebody else's information is very hard to hear. But to be able to say, here is a rational hypothesis, let's, let's look at that. I love it. It's, it's so civilized. So I'm looking, Dr. Campbell, in, in your wonderful book at these incredible charts that you have. For example, animal protein intake and breast cancer mortality. If we were video instead of audio, I would be showing you listeners this chart where the line just goes up in direct proportion to the animal protein intake breast cancer incidence and meat consumption in grams per day same thing colon cancer incidence and per capita daily meat consumption renal cancer incidence prostate cancer mortality in consumption of non-fat milk i mean it's study after study after study how can anybody argue with that? I'm glad you picked that out, Victoria, because uh, that those uh, charts that you just mentioned, they all show the same thing. 
and they've been published more or less over the last 50, 60 years and been ignored. Mostly because the scientists want to focus on a very specific thing. And they will say, for example, that those lines that we call them linear regressions, you know, those different various and sundry diseases, they all increase in a straight line, go straight up as soon as uh, people start consuming animal-based protein. They all show the same thing. It's not always called animal protein. Sometimes it's called skim milk. Sometimes it's called meat. Sometimes it's called saturated fat, which is a surrogate measure for animal protein. So that's what I put in the book four. They all are consistent. They're all so consistent. And that line, that regression line comes straight down right to the, through more or less through the XY origin, which means that, you know, as soon as we start consuming some animal-based food, in theory, the risk of disease starts to go up for a whole host of these diseases. It's amazing. Um, and, and your question about, you know, why do, we, why do we not notice that? It's because the people who are in this business are too focused on looking for a specific, you know, entity that might be responsible for that causation. And they get big arguments about the fact that, you know, correlations don't equal causation. Well, that's not the way disease occurs anyhow. It doesn't occur with one thing. It occurs in response to a whole lot of things working together in a holistic way. So I, I, I think that work that's been done in the past is going to have to be reinterpreted. It's very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. And I hope that my plate putting in the book, like that might help. Well, I think sometimes I, when I, you just see it, when you get the visual, it's so powerful. Yes, it is. One of those uh, was uh, one of the researchers, excellent researcher, excellent man, a professor at University of Western Ontario in Canada, now the late Ken Carroll. He was a friend of mine, and we exchanged lectures and so forth and so on. But uh, Ken one time was on a committee and asked me to comment and give some ideas. This was the National Academy Science Committee. And I, I had the opportunity of telling Ken, I said, I want to show your charts here. These, these were published in 1975. I said, I'd like to show them and offer this alternative explanation for what you have. And Ken, because he, he, uh, he said, go for it. He really liked my reinterpretation, gave me permission to reinterpret his original data. So I feel comfortable telling about this because he gave me permission to do so. Um, and uh, it's really, it was animal protein-based diets, not the animal protein only by itself, all that contributes to it, but it's consuming that kind of diet is what raises the risk for heart disease, various and sundry cancers, prostate cancer, uh, endometrial cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, etc. And, and as I say, heart disease as well. It's... Uh, it is, and the consistency is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling, and here we have it right in front of us, have had it for more than a half century, and then ignoring it. Well, I don't think it will be ignored for long. <laughs> As more and more people so. read your work and, and are getting on board with this. So just in, in our final couple of minutes, the future of nutrition, what is it? How do you see it? Give me a 10-year view. 
Well, first off, we've got to make sure that our medical professionals are taught this subject, number one. Number two, that is medical school should be offering nutrition. Secondly, those folks who are you know, in that business need to be adequately reimbursed for their services. And this is particularly true for the United States and other countries, but we, we live in a capitalist-intensive system here, and so doctors are paid you know, for whatever they're paid for, but... But when there's there's not they have very little opportunity of getting compensated for their services if they start telling their patients, hey, all you need to do is change your diet. So we we have to get the medical profession, you know, give them the opportunity of learning about this and getting paid for providing these services. That's that's the really big thing. And the second thing, as far as the future is concerned, too, uh, we've got to basically start questioning the national authorities on developing dietary guidelines and recommendations because they're doing it. Their recommendations, and I've been very deeply involved in some of that in the earlier years, they're really beholden to the industry. That's got to be pointed out to the public. Um, and so we're getting, we're getting these advisories at a very high level spread far and wide with information that's not helpful. In fact, it's really uh, it's causing us a lot of difficulty, quite frankly. So, well, I would, sometime in the future, we're going to have to address those questions. Yes. Well, you have been addressing them for a long time, and you continue to. Everybody, you've got to get this book, The Future of Nutrition, An Insider's Look at the Science, Why We Keep Getting It Wrong, and How to Start Getting It Right. Dr. T. Colin Campbell, it is, as always, an honor and a pleasure. And may this book set the world on fire in every good way. (laughs) Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. And thanks so very much to Dr. Campbell and to our wonderful listeners. God bless you. Eat your veggies whole. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.